Hello, everybody. Do you ever have those days when you're sitting there scratching your head when all of a sudden the politicians in the world promise to go to green, renewable nirvana, but have no way to get there? And we sit here and go, can you make a iPhone from a windmill? That is a question we're going to ask today. I guarantee you it's going to be a lot of fun. Buckle up, get your tray table on the side, and we're going to have some fun. My name is Stu Turley, President and CEO of the Sandstone Group, and I've got an unbelievable guest today. It is Doug Sandridge with Fulcrum Energy Operating. Thank you, Doug, for stopping by the podcast. Great to be here. It's fantastic to, to help help get this message about energy out. And uh, you guys are the great conduit. Oh, well, well, thank you. I'll tell you, I'll pay you later. And uh, a little inside baseball, you and I have just had a lot of fun chat chatting back around. You're an OU grad and uh, you're on your way. You're in Denver right now. You're coming back to uh, OU to see your, your mom. But I went to that other horrible school, uh, Oklahoma State University. And uh, I just love our rivalry. I am so sad that you guys went to the SEC. So I'm a little sad, too, but <laughs> it is what it is. They didn't ask me my opinion. No, they didn't ask mine. But you know what? In the bright side, bright side of things, uh, I went to school with Gundy uh, and uh, when he was playing there. And uh, uh, he's a cool. He's a cool cat. And at least we won the last game we played. Now, I'll just leave that alone. You guys won. 9,000 to one, and we won the last one. So that's okay. I thought we were talking energy here today. I didn't know oh. I was going to get slapped down. <laughs> this is going to be over in a moment. All right, let's go ahead and get started. You got worked up when you were sitting there as an oil executive. Uh, the great oil and gas of the United States can get us to energy independence, but we need nuclear we need wind, we need solar, we need all of it to get the lowest kilowatt per hour to elevate everybody out of human out of poverty. But why can't we all get along? I think we've heard that before. And what worked you up, Doug? <laughs> well, I've been worked up my whole life. I, I can remember <laughs> my dad was a geologist for 40 years for Phillips Petroleum and um you know, we were getting worked up around the dinner table 40 years ago, and um, the, the oil and gas business certainly has not done a good job representing itself. They, they just always have always sat back and, and taken the shots and not counterpunched very much. And I know a lot of people, even in my own family, you know, go to Thanksgiving dinner and your grandparents and your uncles are all chipping away at you and talking smack about the oil and gas business. And, and most of them have no idea uh, how valuable oil and gas has been to uh, human flourishing, uh, flourishing of the American society and Western society. So fortunately, I think uh, a lot of people in our industry are starting to uh, be emboldened and be empowered to come out and uh, stop being embarrassed about what we do and talk about all the great things that this industry has done for, for humanity. Um, what got me really worked up more recently, as I had recently you and I discussed, was back in the 2020 election cycle, so four years ago, um, we're sitting there in COVID, and I um, did something kind of unusual. I, I was teaching class at University of Oklahoma, and so I'm always trying to 
keep an edge and trying to be informed. And of course, your students are usually smarter than you. So I got to do everything I can to stay ahead of the students. And I was researching and trying to learn the policy positions of all the uh, 20 plus Democratic candidates for president. Now, a lot of them didn't have policy positions on energy, which is understandable. You can understand uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. He just was not very knowledgeable about energy. I don't think he had an official policy position, but he was the mayor of um, South Bend, Indiana. So, but the one that got me worked up was Michael Bloomberg, because Michael Bloomberg, whatever you think about his politics, he is a sharp guy. He's obviously very smart and um, on his website, and his website is probably still out there to, for all to go see, but on his presidential website, it said, if you elect me president, then by the end of my second term, so basically saying in eight years, we will have 80% of our electricity will be provided by renewable energy. Wow. And my, my head exploded. I was like, this is not a this is not a lack of will or a lack of money. This is just simply not possible. And I, I started to, to research all the ways why this was an absolute ridiculous statement. Absolutely. I, I mean, people don't realize you cannot. It's energy versus uh, I mean, electricity is only one form of the energy and you cannot make highways. You can't make things without petrochemicals. You can't make an iPhone. I all, I love seeing all these people going, get rid of uh, oil. oil, no more oil. And then they glue themselves to the road with glue made from oil. Exactly. And where are you going to, uh, how are you going to pave the, the United States without asphalt? I mean, what, 95% of our asphalt comes from um, production of oil and gas. And, and coal. I wrote uh, three years ago, Doug, uh, that the more we go renewable, the more we go renewable, the more fossil fuels we will use. And everybody was like, really? I'm like, here's the numbers. California is using more coal now than when they had the coal plants because they have to backfill. Anyway, long story. Well, it sounds like we're we're uh, the 2023. We will set a new annual record for coal use worldwide, and I don't think there's anybody who disagrees that we will not set another co- a record for use of coal worldwide next year in 2024. So uh, it's true. Now, I am a huge nuclear fan. I am. We have to have nuclear. We have to have natural gas. And Doug, the EIA, the political uh, folks. Legislation through regulatory action is what just drives me nuts. That's like something somebody from OSU would do. I I don't know. But <laughs> but when we sit back and kind of go, hey, um, we have the regulations there. Well, uh, we gotta have all we gotta have all these energies. And I, you know, I, for me to say Bloomberg's uh, statement was ridiculous um doesn't make me anti-renewable. I mean, I, it doesn't. I, I yes. think there's a perfectly appropriate place for renewable energy, and it's going to be a huge part of the so-called energy transition. You know, the next thirty years, but solar and wind and batteries alone are not going to power society at an industrial scale. So we need more 
than just wind and solar. And like you said, I think nuclear is often overlooked and, and uh, it, we're yep. hopefully on the cusp of a, of a nuclear renaissance. I, I sure hope so. And um, I had the opportunity to, to interview uh, Miss uh, America. Uh, Grace Stanky. And she is adorable. I, I mean, she was over in Dubai and it was midnight my time and I got to interview her and she was glowing. I swear, I thought she was nuclear. Being a nuclear engineer, she was talking about the UAE and they've got 25% of their power for the UAE is coming out of their brand new nuclear facility. That is a great baseline. We need that nuclear baseline. She's she's a superstar, and and uh, we need people like that to help um, guide this renaissance. Because most young people who are going to be helping guide this aren't looking to people like you and me for advice on energy. Oh. So Grace Stanky is is she's she's a rock star. She is. Now tell me about what you've got for your um, nuclear project or your executives. You have over 100 executives sign this thing. Tell us about that. Well, uh, let me back up and little, tell you a little bit about how I got there, because, um, you know, I, I'm, let's, let's be clear. I'm an oil and gas person. I've been working in oil and gas for over 40 years. So I'm I'm an oil and gas professional. And I've spent my entire life doing oil and gas. Um, little known fact, I was actually a nuclear engineering major in college uh, in 1979 when Three Mile Island um, occurred, Three Mile Island accident occurred. And to be honest, I don't want to make myself out to be some sort of you know smart nuclear engineering guy. I was a nuclear engineer because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, a lot of my friends were in engineering. I actually just thought it would be cool to to say I'm a nuclear engineer. So that was my major. Uh, you know, I was taking all the basic classes. I never really learned anything about nuclear engineering. I was taking, you know, calculus yeah. and physics and stuff. And then the Three Mile Island accident happened in, in Pennsylvania. And uh, that was that was kind of the last straw that broke the camel's back in the nuclear industry in the U.S. for a long time. Uh, the nuclear industry had been in decline for quite a while. Prior to that, but then shortly before that, um, that accident happened, the China syndrome came out with Jane Fonda scaring all the public. And then when it really happened, um, then it just scared the bejesus out of everybody. And, and, the, re and the reality is, uh, you know, it wasn't a major, it was a major accident, but no one was hurt. Um, there was no major release of radiation. Nobody got a, you know, a big dose of radiation. All the safety systems worked. They did work. And in fact, the I think the um, the other unit at Three Mile Island continued operating until two or three years ago. Right. So it was overblown, but it did throw a, a, a kink, a wrench into the works. And I ended up getting into oil and gas after that and have no regrets about that. And, but I spent my whole life in oil and gas and I have a family and a 60 hour a week job. I don't really have time to be advocating for nuclear energy. So I didn't really come back to nuclear energy until. It's really started with that uh, 2020 evaluation of the Democratic uh, candidates for president, because as I started looking at what they wanted to do, I started to conclude that really we are not going to make any serious um, movement on reducing carbon emissions without nuclear energy, that that has to be part of the equation. I'm not saying it's the only part. I have friends in the nuclear industry who think, 
we should be all nuclear all the time, no oil and gas, no renewables, just nuclear. That is not how I feel. But I do think it's got to be part of it. And so I started to get involved in some nuclear advocacy work. And um, I think I'd mentioned to you previously, I traveled to Berlin on two different occasions in the last three years uh, with the U.S. delegation trying to shame the Germans into keeping their last six nuclear power plants open. And we knew that it was unlikely that it would work, but you had to go on record as saying this is really a bad idea to close down those plants. And I worked with several other uh, pro-nuclear groups around the country, but I was sort of a, a, an apprentice. You know, I was I would listen, sit in, listen to groups, and and participate to the extent that I could. But I'm an oil and gas guy. In some respects, I was kind of the token oil and gas guy in a lot of this nuclear advocacy, <laughs> and I was always looking for a way that I could maybe um, become more involved. But not being a nuclear person and having my own job, I mean, it was sort of limited my options. And then last year, I was on a conference call with the group that ultimately saved Diablo Canyon. It was one. Of, it was a stand-up for oh, nuclear wow. group. And uh, we're on a conference call. And as usual, I usually um, am on mute listening and learning and seeing the politics and the strategies of what's going on. And uh, someone in the group said, well, we know all you oil and gas guys hate oil, hate us in nuclear. And I was like, I don't think that's really true. And then before I even was able to take myself off of mute, either that same person or someone else followed that up and said, not only that, you, you, you oil and gas companies overtly undermine the, the nuclear industry. And I just know that's not true. And so I took myself off of mute and I said, I think you guys are crazy. I I don't know all the millions of people in the U.S. that work in oil, in oil and gas, but I know a lot. And I don't know anyone who who does not support nuclear energy. And I think the reason we all support nuclear energy is generally oil and gas people are very pragmatic. They right. understand a superior form of energy. They understand a good, uh, reliable, resilient, affordable uh, energy source, and we're man enough to recognize another one. Even though we're in oil and gas, we're man enough to recognize nuclear for all the the energy dense value that 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 uh, industry brings. So, I pushed back a little bit, and then I started thinking to myself, "Well, maybe I'm maybe I'm the one that has the bad perspective." So I started asking friends and asking around to see if anybody else uh, felt the same way in my industry felt that we're anti nuclear and. Over the course of a couple of months, I couldn't find a single person, not one, not privately. They're they're all like, no, nuclear is great. And so I decided, well, maybe one thing I could do to to help the cause, to to help push forward the narrative that we need to do more nuclear was I said, maybe it would be very powerful if uh, we got a bunch of oil and gas executives to sign a declaration saying uh, in support of nuclear energy. Because you don't see coal executives putting out a, a, a promotion in favor of solar. You don't see wind executives saying how good oil and gas is. Right. And so it's powerful because we don't gain, as oil and gas executives, we don't gain anything uh, personally by coming out in favor of it. We're saying it because it's true and because it's impactful. And I th- had this idea, and I'm sure you know Chris Wright, the uh, CEO of Liberty Energy, one of the greatest advocates for our industry anywhere in the world. And um, I thought, you know, I'm not sure I've got the gravitas to do this. So I I thought, I'm going to call Chris and see if he thinks this is a good idea. And so I send Chris an email or a text, I can't remember. 
and um, thinking, you know, he might get back to me in a week or so. You know, he's a very busy guy and he doesn't just drop what he's doing to answer me. But almost immediately, he texted me or emailed me back and said, I love this idea. Let's do it. So we drafted this declaration and um, it took several months because we're all still busy doing our real jobs. It was the holidays. We had family going on and and we were trying to make a statement about why energy is important and why nuclear energy is important to the energy mix. And uh, after two or three months, we finally got a, uh, a declaration together that um, explained why energy is important to the world and why nuclear energy is important uh, as part of the energy mix. And we, I sent it over to Chris and said, what do you think? I was figuring he was going to edit it and you know, he's going to put his name on it. I wanted him to be the first one to sign it. And I sent it over there. And, uh, you know, an hour later, his uh, assistant called me and said, well, he, he signed it. Come pick it up. We're ready to roll. And so we just went out and started asking executives to, to sign it. And uh, like you said, we have over 100 that have signed it so far and some pretty big names. And almost everybody that we've asked has agreed to sign it. Now, it's it's sometimes hard to get the attention of some of these um, executives because they're busy uh, they're busy finding oil and gas for the world but um, it, it's been kind of a labor of love and all we're trying to do is ra raise the um, the visibility of this issue and having these hundred executives sign this um, you know can be leveraged for you know to help promote pro-nuclear programs and I think it's fabulous um, a little bit of side note on on Chris a little um, I met Chris years ago and he really kicked off and I attribute uh, Alex Epstein and uh, Chris Wright for how I've uh, laid out this podcast. And I believe that we need to have elevate humanity out of poverty through low cost energy. That presentation that Chris Wright gave, I'm like, I never looked at oil and gas that way. Here I have been working in the in the industry, and I'm like, this is the coolest articulation of low cost energy and humanity. Chris Wright is just a cool human, uh, and I, I I have interviewed him twice, and I just I love that man. But his articulation of everything going on, and when I saw him, I went and looked at your site. Boom. He's the first one right up there. I'm like, this is cool. I'm in. <laughs> so you've got a advocate uh, with Chris Wright that is a, a humanitarian. And, yes. and not only is he a humanitarian, Doug, he's a little bit ESG. And the oil and gas folks have done a great job cleaning up their act over the last several decades. And when you see Chris Wright drinking, his frack fluid with his staff lined up, that's commitment. <laughs> yeah, he is great. Uh, I can't say enough good about Chris. And um, what the, the thing that he's done for me more than just be the first signatory on this declaration is, is that I have run away and been a Frady cat my entire life. You know, when people try to belittle the oil and gas business or come at us, uh, I have not been willing to be a stand-up guy and say, stop, you guys are crazy. I, But he is he has empowered us to now, he's given us the narrative and he's empowered us, made us feel like it's okay to stand up and defend the oil and gas business. 
doesn't mean that we don't support the development of renewable energy. It doesn't mean that we don't see a, a great role for nuclear. But I now am willing to push back against people who try and disparage all the great things that oil and gas has provided for our society. Isn't this cool? Um, you know what's funny? And as an oil guy, uh, you sit back and take a look at how Exxon and Shell, and you take a look at, I love um, uh, the way that it's changed. The European BP, uh, you take a look at Total Energy. That's my Texas, Oklahoma accent on how to pronounce them. They went totally green and then they lost billions and, and they were sitting there kind of going. But the Exxon and Chevrons didn't go as far. But yet you look at Oxy and Oxy's going to carbon capture to get that. They're doing great. So the market is allowing the oil and gas folks to help the other industries and work in this renewable. Uh, you nailed it on, on this. And I think that the leadership and now that we're all able to defend our great oil and gas workers out there and what we do, I'm all, I think it's phenomenal that we are finally there and defending what we're doing. You think about it, the, the greatest private, some of the greatest private research in the United States is done by companies like Exxon and Chevron. Right. And, and formerly Phillips Petroleum had one of the, the right. world-class uh, um, research de uh, departments. And though that's where these, these technologies are going to be advanced through uh, companies like them. So we, we should, instead of ostracizing Exxon and Chevron, we should be bringing them in to help solve these problems. I agree. And I, I, I love your journey that you're on on this because you're articulating exactly what needs to happen to the next generation. We, uh, we talked about grace. What a great world leader asset. I'm gonna, it's going to be fun watching her career. Uh, I was teasing with her that she's going to be a great secretary of energy because she understands all forms of energy. And I think that, that how do we get the next generation interested? Because um, I, my business partner is a young uh, millennial. He's one of the coolest men on the planet. Uh, and, and how do we get more Michael Tanners into the oil and gas space? I mean, you got any thoughts on that? Because your push to help articulate nuclear oil and gas for nuclear is really, really cool. And a subset could be bringing in the next generation. Well, being in energy is a little more cool now than it was just five years ago. I mean, honestly. <laughs> And, you know, my degree was in what at the, the time they called it petroleum land management. I'm sure you've heard of that degree. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, the University of Oklahoma has rebranded that energy management. And so, the, you know, you grow with the times and that that program now um, is not just dedicated to petroleum energy management, land management, but to all energies. Uh, and they teach about nuclear and renewables and um, they've got yeah. professors about wind and so on and so forth. So. Um, we are making that transition, but it hasn't really been cool to be an energy of any kind. And uh, what's happened, though, is uh, a lot of people have come to the energy industry out of a out of a uh, concern about climate. And 
Right. You know, it's it's interesting because a lot of the people that have come around in the last five years to be become pro-nuclear have done so because of their climate concerns, right. not because of their energy resilience or because of affordable energy, but because of climate. And so a lot of these groups that I work with that are, you know, nuclear, you've got uh, everyone's pro-nuclear. But some of them are pro-nuclear only because of climate. And some are pro-nuclear right. like me because they are uh, interested in energy security, energy resiliency, affordable energy, that sort of right. thing. There can be a little clash because a lot of the climate hawks that are in these organizations immediately don't like the fact that I'm in one of these organizations because they view me as the enemy. But right. at least, but now I think it's funny because all, most of the people that I know that come into energy from climate through nuclear, over right. time, they invariably be, develop a much more robust respect for the oil and gas and coal industries. Right. When they, once they, because they come into the industry just because they're trying to do something for climate. And as they do that, they learn more about energy. And the more they learn, if they learn truly about the energy systems, you cannot help but conclude, you know, what, what a big part oil and gas and coal have right. been and probably will continue to be in the energy mix. Right. So uh, we're getting a lot of people into the energy business that um, are coming in for climate reasons, and now they're becoming energy interested. And yeah. it's funny because University of Oklahoma, um, just even four or five years ago, their enrollment in petroleum engineering and land management and those things were were very far down. You couldn't get anybody interested in those degrees. And um, I just found out this week or a couple of weeks ago, I should say, that a class that I usually teach once a year at University of Oklahoma, they have so many students now in the energy management program that they want, to, they want me to come teach that class now twice a year, one in the spring and one in the fall. So it is encouraging to know that it's maybe becoming slightly more cool for the young people to get involved in the, in the energy business. Yeah, I'll tell you, next time you're there teaching, uh, I would love to come do a podcast with you in the class and do it okay. from the uh, thing. Cause give that uh, OU a little bit of notoriety out there and help get that story out there. We need the next generation out there. We do. We do. And I am and I'm heartened by what I'm seeing. And, and another example of that, I don't know if you know Emmett Penny. I know. But he he uh, writes a um a, a weekly uh, piece called, called Grid Brief, and you ought to look at look into Grid Brief. Does some great work. And what I love about Emmett is, um, I my favorite subjects in high school and college were philosophy. I love philosophy, but I could not, for the life of me, figure out how I could make a living doing philosophy. So I ended up doing oil and gas. But Emmett went to school and got a degree in in philosophy. And he was a self-described um, Marxist when he was in college. Wow. And, um, but he got out of college, and he had some student loan debt, and he's working three jobs, uh, doing minimum wage. And he slowly became a non-Marxist anymore. I mean, the reality slapped him in the face. <laughs> um, and then he went to work. Uh, I believe he went to work uh, out for Michael Schellenberger. Uh, working on the pro-nuclear uh, agenda, environmental progress. And um, he has slowly 
learned about the energy industry and has now become a really great resource. So you should check out his his. Um, oh, absolutely, I, I will. And I like him though because he's the he's the example of the guys who come in to the energy space as a Marxist, oil and gas hating, yeah. nuclear loving person. But as he learns more about nuclear, he learns more about energy systems. And when you learn more about energy systems, you see how difficult it is to to completely upend an energy system and how important and then he understands how important oil and gas has been for human flourishing over the years right. and um he has come full cycle over and so i i love it. he's a typical story of how once you get into this and learn about it there's right. more there's more than just the uh the 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 quick slogans of the environmentalists there's there's a lot more to know about the energy transition you know, one of the things uh, that I absolutely, uh, Schellenberg's cool cat. The one thing I do love is uh, in your, one of your sub stacks that I, I read uh, that was out there, uh, Meredith Anglin, Shorting the Grid. Her book is phenomenal. Yeah. And when we sit back and, and, and Doug, you and I talk about the importance of a baseload, nuclear in, 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 in uh, Texas, uh, 10%, uh, 10% or something like that is baseload nuclear. They have four, uh, two reactors, four actual reactors, two locations. Uh, and then we have all the natural gas uh, plants. Total Energy just bought all this, uh, all these natural gas plants because they're wanting to invest in natural gas. That comes back into all of a sudden they're coming back our way. But Meredith is a national treasure. And I did not understand really the interconnect between nuclear oil and gas, coal, and renewables until you read that book, shorting the book. I highly recommend. I have enjoyed my two conversations with her, and she really articulates. Could you imagine, Doug, if you and I went back in 79 and became a grid balancing authority? You and I would not, we'd be in a mental institute by having to try to figure well, that Meredith out. Well, Meredith is a rock star, and um, I've become friends with her, and I oh, sometimes oh. I sometimes actually send things for her to review before I publish them. So that last uh, article that you read, um, I sent it to her ahead of time, and I said, um, you know, I'm going to quote you in here, and please let me know if you've got any right. any comments about my – so I, I, I think she is a national treasure, and it's interesting because when she's such an unassuming person, and um, it's easy for her to – for you to be sort of lulled into believing she's not a, a, not a real – expert on this matter because she's so nice and so um but when i first read when i first heard about her i i was reading everything i could about energy and I, and there's not many books out there about the grid so right. i wanted to read that book and it was unbelievable and so now i've ended up reading that book three times it's like a textbook i have about a <laughs> hundred different pages marked in it and i go back to it all the time and so now you know first when i first saw it i said oh there's a nice little old lady who's written this book and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And now she is the gold standard. And she literally, uh, that book is an is, is is so important to the industry, our entire national industry, because 
she has brought together all these different pieces in a way that most people had never thought about it. And I know people in the utility industry who read her. I know people in the oil and gas and people in the electricity industry. Everybody needs to read that book. It's all about the grid, stupid. Uh, I'm serious. And, and I did not know that it was that complicated. It's one of the world's biggest machines that has ever been built. And yeah. and when you take, uh, you know, the balancing authority, when you take a coal plant, you take a natural gas plant and you, you add 20 percent for your base load in case you need to bring another plant down or anything else. That's that's a pretty easy formula. Uh, and, and so, you know, OK. As soon as you add one wind farm to it, you got to make it now 180% for that base load because of the balancing authority and the additional drugs that they need in order to maintain their sanity. So, you know, these poor You're guys- saying that they have to make the reserve margin 180%. No, they should be making it. They are not doing that. That's the problem in Texas is they don't have any reserve margin. I mean, literally. But- Physics matter, and Meredith points that out. You so everybody says, "Oh, I've got a wind turbine that was does one gigawatt." No, you need a hundred and eighty of those in order to make. Anyway, I don't think any of these people who are promulgating these new rules should be allowed to promulgate any new rules <laughs> unless they can say they have read Meredith's book. I mean, literally, that that should be a prerequisite. And pass a test. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> She's great. And and I do a lot of reading um, by audiobook because I travel a lot. And so right. at least half the books, more than half the books I read, I do by audio while I'm either traveling or in the shower. And um, I was always disappointed that Meredith, you know, it was, it was um, a small publication. And and, right. she, and so it was not originally on audiobook. And then another uh, friend of mine from yeah. uh, the nuclear business, Eric Meyer. Um, is also friends with Meredith, and he agreed. He, I think he's a um, a trained opera singer, so he's got a great voice. Wow! And, and he um, he contacted Meredith and said, "I'll read that book and put it on audio for you. I, it's so important." And so recently, he has read the book and they put it out on audio. Oh. So now I listen to the book again. I will go uh, buy it today with Eric Meyer as the as the uh, narrator. How cool is that? Just the more we can get people excited to elevate and pull the Chris right. I'm sorry. I, we keep going back to these great industry thought leaders that are out there. And we've got to share the word because the great oil and gas folks, I, I went out to the uh, uh, international oil and gas show out in Midland. Uh, that Doug, that was so cool. I got to stand out there with my cowboy hat and I'm I'm visiting with, uh, on my live podcast, I've got everybody lined up out here, and I'm visiting with the Secretary General for the African OPEC. So it's the African Oil Producers uh, Organization, the OPEC of Africa, and we're talking about energy security for Africa from the largest oil field in the in the world is in the Permian Basin. And how cool is that? You cannot, we've got to be able to have a global discussion. It's not just the U.S. You know, it's true. And it's funny. Uh, one of the guys, I, when I went to Germany in November of 2021, they were getting ready to shut down three of their final six nuclear power plants. And one of the guys that I met there was a 
young kid, I don't even know how he afforded to come to Germany, but somebody had helped him get there from Nigeria, no, from, um, oh, I can't even remember a country in East Africa. It might have been Ethiopia. No, it was uh, Southeast Africa. Okay. And uh, but I met this guy. He was really, really nice. And he was a, a young kid just trying to stir up interest in the nuclear business uh, yeah. industry in Africa. And I met him. And uh, just the other day, he called me and said, hey, I want you to come on my podcast from cool. um, Zambia or wherever he is right now. Um, and uh, so you're right, it's, it's a worldwide issue. And I, I, I do have a lot of uh, sympathy for the African continent and what's going on there yes. because they have they they are very energy poor they're very electricity poor right um and the colonialism that is going on today um it, it, the the continued patronization of those countries especially by the european countries who say you know we're not going to loan you money for an oil and gas exploration we're not going to loan you money for a coal mine uh you know that these people uh, need to be allowed to develop at some sort of minimal amount of energy and the, yes. there's such energy poverty my parents lived in the ivory coast uh when i was in call after i was in college right. i didn't didn't live there but i used to visit you know often and uh, the abject poverty is is almost hard to understand as an American. Wow. And uh, they have the right, and we should be enabling them exactly uh, the the right to to uh, to develop their energy resources. And you know, for Germany Germans to you know say we're not going to loan you money for these projects, but then they're they're turning on more coal plants themselves and buying the coal from South Africa. Um, it's just uh, a very hypocritical and very sad thing. And I think we've got to get past that. Uh, energy hypocrisy drives me nuts. And I do everything I can. We're in 150 countries in this podcast. And it absolutely drives me nuts that we have such energy and ESG hypocrisy. Um, and in any, uh, I've got other uh, world leaders I am thrilled that Africa is standing up uh, and saying, hey, wait a minute. Now, it's the International Monetary Fund I think needs to be abolished. I think that we need to invest in, in Africa. And you know, Doug, let's take this as another uh, component of your nuclear movement. Do you know what we could do? To help out Africa is if we had the great oil and, and gas companies invest in Africa, do you know the business development and demand that could be done by elevating them out of poverty, the commercial market that you could do, it would be phenomenal win. If I was an oil and gas executive and I wanted to plan out the next 50 years, ah, Let's elevate them. Let's get them drinking water. Let's build the grid. Um, and then when you take a look at the EIA in 2022, the only reason the U.S. Uh, reduced our green, uh, our carbon output was because of natural gas and natural gas. Now, China 
increase theirs 220% because the over 400 uh, coal plants that they're putting in. And then we have China. Uh, We're buying all these renewable stuff from China. They're using coal to make it and then selling it to us, and we're going bankrupt. My head just explodes when we talk about this. Well, I think this is one of the, the, the huge failures we've had in education and energy education, because you can look at this from a California standpoint. It's, it's very similar. California, they, um, they, they get rid of their natural gas plants to get rid of their coal plants. Um, they, they've not stopped driving their cars. I was in LA last week. They're still driving their cars. They're still running their air conditioners. So it, it's it's um, um, it's virtue signaling. And so what they do is they're, they're saying that they, they get rid of the refineries, they get rid of their coal plants, and yet they still are using the electricity. They're buying, you know, crude oil from uh, countries in South America that are producing it out of the rainforest, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, the same thing is happening with China. We're not reducing our carbon emissions when we ship our, we're we're shifting our carbon emissions, not, we're not reducing them. We're, we're, we're virtue signaling by saying, we're not going to do it here. And then we send it to China. And so we basically re-import those those carbon emissions when we re-import the cars, the solar panels, the wind turbines, all the thousands of products we buy, we're we're we are not getting rid of carbon emissions. We are shifting them to China so it makes us feel good. And then there we're re-importing them sneakily. All right. Are you ready for this one? Okay. You're gonna hear it here a second. Newsom, our beloved governor in uh, our third world country of California. I love California. Um, I just am sorry that it's going the way it is. But they're shutting down all of their um, refineries in California. What happens when President Xi from China piles in and he cleans up and Newsom stands up there and with hypocrisy and doesn't even miss a beat? Oh, we cleaned up the homeless because President Xi was coming in. So what's your point? So then, guess what China has just done? China has increased their uh, refining capacity 1 million barrels per day, and agreements are being drawn up for uh, California to buy China oil uh, and refine products because we could have made it here. Do you know what that's doing to the environment? They're not practicing good ESG. You're going to hear it here first. And I guarantee you, it is not public yet. I'm trying to get those documents and they are there. And it is something that Schellenberger, I guarantee you, he will pop this thing out. And you're going to hear that those, those agreements are going to be made public fairly soon. And that drives me nuts. Sorry. Yeah, it's, I mean, you, it would be more intellectually honest to say, we okay, we're going to close down the refineries, and by the way, we will not sell gasoline anymore. But instead, we're going to close down the refineries and buy it from China and India. And they're already destroying the rainforest. You just brought that up. They're buying 70% of the Chinese oil that's built, that's tearing apart the great rainforest. They're doing it. The energy hypocrisy in California is hurting the poor people. 
I'm sorry. I'm getting worked up. And I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I just signed your, uh, your uh, oil people for executives. I don't know that I qualify, but uh, my company, I do uh, bring data from the oil fields into accounting and then to investors. So I don't know that I qualify, but you're I, in, you're in, you're in. And I did, I did remember the, the fellow who called me from Africa is from Kenya. Kenya. So he said Nairobi. Fantastic. So I want to be respectful to him. Uh, um, it's terrible that I'd forgot where he was from, but um, I'll be doing a podcast with him hopefully here soon. Oh, Van, uh, let us know because I want to share it and anything that we can get on the Energy Newsbeat platform. We want to help be an arm for you. And I guarantee you, you, got, you have an open invitation, Doug. Anytime that you want to have a panel, Let's get Chris. Let's get anybody. Let's have panels. Let's have webinars. Let's do education and help get the word out for your organization. I am all in on helping you out. Well, maybe we'll do a panel uh, and talk about how the oil and gas business is going to embrace nuclear. I had no idea when I started this idea uh, how uh, how deeply the um, oil and gas business is getting into nuclear as well. And so do, I don't know if you know this, but uh, but uh, Liberty Energy has yep. recently invested in Oklo. Oh, the, no, the nuclear I did not know that. So, yes, they are an investor in Oklo. And so uh, Chris, um, Liberty had, a, uh, had, a, had an event in Midland. So here we are talking about the marriage of nuclear and oil and gas. But back in, the, uh, in October, um, Liberty Energy wow. uh, rented out the Petroleum Club in Midland and uh, invited all the oil and gas people in Midland to come listen to a presentation about Oak Club. And so all of a sudden, I, re I started to realize there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. I know of at least one other well-known service company that is deeply invested in nuclear. It's not, it's not public. But I also know several of the, the major oil companies are invested in uh, nuclear energy, both fission wow. and fusion. Uh, I, there, there's some companies taking a serious look at nuclear energy out in the Permian Basin right now, because as you can imagine, you you know the amount of growth that has taken place in the Permian yep. in the last 10 years. And the electric system, the electric operator out there simply cannot keep pace. There's not enough <laughs> copper wire. There's not enough technicians. There's not enough transformers. Uh, and so, so there's oil and, and the gas are terrible. <laughs> they're talking about building their own infrastructure out there, small micro reactors or small modular reactors. And um, the demand for electricity is skyrocketing. And even in even in Texas, the oil and gas companies are becoming more concerned about uh, emissions and more concerned about noise. And I think Chris. Chris, I'm not going to speak for Chris, but I think Liberty Energy is probably thinking, you know, we can if we could build a nuclear power plant out in West Texas. So I know I have no insider knowledge about Liberty or what they're doing, but I'm speculating that companies like Liberty and other uh, frag fleets might be looking at it and saying um, we could if we could get a small modular reactor out here and we could we could run our frag fleets on small nuclear, nuclear energy rather than diesel that that cleans up the diesel it also make you're using less diesel you can use that for more um other products uh oil and gas products and it also it makes your fleets quiet and so that that is a 
you know, a metric that is is helpful to the community. It provides, you know, yeah. some some standing with your community when you're fracking these things with quiet electric fleets rather than diesel fleets. So I can see where there's this synergy developing between yeah, cool. nuclear and oil and gas and a lot of oil and gas investment in nuclear right now. Um, you know, I didn't understand truly uh, when I first saw that years ago when uh, Chris was building his electric fleet uh, for frack. And I was sitting there going, now that's kind of counterintuitive <laughs> until you sit there and he can get captured uh, flare gas from the well. Oh, instead of flaring it, burn it to electricity, pump it into uh, using it on the electric fly. All of a sudden, I'm going, Chris is brilliant again. And I, I'm like, that makes sense to me. And, and it's like, wow. Well, you know, most of these oil fields around the world are in these very terrible remote areas where there aren't people normally. Um, but uh, here in Colorado, and of course, Liberty's located here in Colorado, their headquarters are here. And we have the big DJ Basin, which was, you know, um, a big oil and gas producing province for the last 90 years or so. Mm. But um, in the last 20 years, we've had a lot of people move into Colorado. And so now we have a lot of people, a lot of them from California and Oregon and Washington, and they're moving into areas and there's oil and gas wells all around them. And they're raising a lot of stink about oil and gas development. Well, one of the things that you can do to kind of head off some of that criticism is to have quiet fleets. So I think that probably the DJ Basin and Liberty and the operations here in Colorado yeah. was kind of the, the testing ground for developing uh, quiet fleets. And, yeah. you know, a lot of them wow. here run off the grid, but if you were in West Texas and you can't, you know, I have a friend that, that uh, works for a refinery out in West Texas. They said, if we wanted to, to, to request new service out here in the Permian Basin, it would take about four to five years before we could get new service you know, oh, yeah. installed. And so I think that's why these oil and gas companies might be looking at possibly using micro reactors oh, as yeah. an alternative. So, uh, In fact, my company was uh, critical in getting the first um, uh, permits done for PDC because when they put the new Senate bill, I think it was 218, uh, on the uh, regulatory issues in Colorado, they're a nightmare, absolutely a nightmare. In fact, they don't, they nobody could even understand the regulations, let alone the regulatory agency that did it. We automated it, and we we're able to go out and grab because you got to be able to know how many cars, how many homes, you got to be able to provide all these things within the X number of feet of, you know, the thing. And we were able to help, help them get that. Uh, so um, I got great people that understand all those things. Colorado is a tough nut. It's a uh, very difficult. It's not as, not quite as bad as California, but it's close. Uh, I believe the people coming to Colorado are bringing their voting policies with them. So yeah, when people ask me where I'm from, I usually tell them I'm from Eastern California. <laughs> I love that. Well, Doug, I want you back. And I know that you and I are going to do some more podcasts in the future and webinars and any way that I can help uh, even be live and do things for you. Um, what are some last thoughts for you and how do people get a hold of you? I'm going to have your LinkedIn information here in the show notes and uh, anything else uh, 
all of your contact information. But yeah, LinkedIn is a great time. way to reach out to me. I, I do a lot of a lot of my contacts on LinkedIn, and and I'd love to to work together more. Uh, I'll let you know. I'm teaching that next class at OU in in February, and I'll get with the program director, and we'll see about getting a live podcast going. And I'd love to do a um, a panel. Let's get uh, you know later in the spring. Let's get Chris Ryan and some others on a panel and talk Absolutely. about the synergy of oil and gas and nuclear. That would be a great panel. Um, I know you 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 do stuff with Irina. I'd like to give a shout out to Irina. She's a great friend, uh, Irina Slav. Isn't and, she fun? Uh, I I love her. I love reading her stuff about more than anyone else, just because she's so witty um, and so tongue in cheek. I went and visited her last year. In the no fall. way. I was uh, well. I went to I went to Berlin in April. To uh, they were closing down the last three nuclear power plants on April the fifteenth. So I went with a bunch of people there to get a rally yep. and show our our uh, disdain for shutting down. I mean, because those German power plants are phenomenal. I mean, they are as as Emmett Penny would say, uh, industrial cathedrals of clean energy. I mean, they are very safe, wow. immaculately operated by the Germans. And I went over. And um, I asked my wife if she wanted to go with me, and she's like, no, I'd rather stay here. So I took my mom, and my mom loves to travel. And so since we're over there, I said, hey, mom, you know what I'd really like to do is I'd like to go meet Irina in person. And I said, mom, have you ever been to Bulgaria? And she said, no, I'll go to Bulgaria with you. So we we uh, flew to Sofia um, after, the, uh, after being in Berlin and drove over to see Irina. And she is such a delight. She brought her daughter to lunch yeah. and she's, I don't know, about 10 years old and has the intellect of a 30 year old. I oh. mean, she spoke English immaculately. We had a great adult conversation. And the amazing thing is, you know, Irina went to Cambridge. I believe I, she went I to know Cambridge. that. I talk to her every month for the last two years, and I love our our discussions and our monthly podcast series. She, uh, it was amazing though. She said, "I have never met an American before." She grew up in Bulgaria. She went to Cambridge, but apparently only met wow. British people. And she said that when my mom and I came to visit her, she said, "You are the first Americans I've ever met in person." I've worked for American companies. I wrote for, you know. Uh, Oil and gas magazines, I, but I've never actually met an American. So Irina, I, I just give a shout out to her. She does some of the best writing. And if I wanna if I wanna learn something and be humored at the same time, that's who I'm gonna pick up. Um, I wanna give you a little bit of a, a tidbit. Um, my content is shut down by Google. Google does not like me because I'm a humanitarian first. I'm energy agnostic to the point that it has to be sustainable, can't be print, love love nuclear, love oil and gas, love all this stuff, and they hate me. And I, they don't like it because I speak the truth about renewable energy is not sustainable. And, you, you know, and it's not there. But Irina, when I read her Substack, she reads her Substack. I want to let you know. If you listen to her Substack, her article being read to by Irina is priceless. It turns that funny Substack into hilarious. 
That's why I think she's the best because she is a very brilliant writer. She's a great writer, and she, it's amazing her her grammar and her writing is better than anything I could ever do. Right. And but she's so knowledgeable as well about the energy industry. I started reading her because growing up overseas, I always have kind of seeked a more international. Um, a narrative on energy. You know, right. when you, you're here in the States and you read the Wall Street Journal, if you read the Financial Times in London, you get a different story. You know, you get right. a different perspective. And so I like to read the Financial Times. And so I was kind of seeking out some more European voices on energy so I'd have a more balanced uh, understanding of what was going on in Europe. And that's how I found her originally. Right. She's so knowledgeable about energy. And then to add her humor and her complete wittiness, uh, I mean, uh, I can read her all day long. So oh, I'll tell you, I'm I am just so blessed to be on uh, Armando um, Kavanaugh. I just really want to give him a shout out as well because I he has invited me on uh, to help fill in for Irina for the short term on their Monday morning live mm-hmm. uh, international, and I have a hoot with Tammy Nemeth, David Blackman. Love David Blackman. He is. He has more content than anybody I know. I don't know. My wife says he must not sleep. He has, he he puts out more content than I can read. Um, David and I and Ray Trevino are on uh, the three podcasters walk into a bar. If we can ever have you on there, we will have you uh, as our guest and have that. We just had Dr. Ed Ireland on there. And we want to do a three podcasters walk into a bar with me, you and David and, and uh, RT. That would be an absolute hoot. I don't know if you saw David Blackman sign the nuclear declaration. I did not see that yet. Yeah, he, he was Wow. Early doctor. I, I I would love to do a Vulcan mind melt on David Blackman. I would just go up and get all of his technical knowledge and everything else. Leave his personal stuff behind. Don't want any of that. But I would love all of his. He is such a great asset as well. He's one of the great thought leaders out there. He definitely is. Yeah, he's up there with Chris. Well, I can't wait to meet you in person. Just like Irina, maybe you know we'll we'll have some serious fun. And uh, visit with you again. So thank well, I'm you. I'm going to be in Tulsa this weekend. Maybe I should drive over to Tin Killer and find you. Uh, or I go up there. So we'll have some fun. Thank you so much, Doug, for stopping. It was great. It was a lot of fun. And I know when I listen to your podcast, you guys have more fun on your podcast than anybody I know. So it's good to talk about a serious subject, but not take yourself too seriously. Humor is this is a, a, a key for you. Humor gets around the algorithms for being shut down. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) Figured it out. Let's do it again. Sounds great. Thanks. 